1: Welcome to ODI on this fine morning. My name is Alex Theer. I am the executive director here, and we are very excited uh, to have you for this event today on providing decent jobs for all. Uh, This is truly one of the issues of our era, um, and we have an incredible uh, group of people here to talk to you today. Uh, We are first and foremost honored Uh, who I will introduce in a minute uh, to have Her Excellency Amina Gurib-Farqim, Farkim, is the President of the Republic of Mauritius, and she is going to open us today with a keynote speech. Uh, This speech will be followed uh, by a panel discussion, including Louise Fox, who I just saw up on the screen, my friend Louise, who is currently the Chief Economist. Uh, Thanks for waving. The Chief Economist at USAID. Uh, Myrtle Whitboy, who is right here. Um, uh, She is the president of the International Domestic Workers Federation and Elizabeth Stewart, who is the head of the Growth, Poverty and Inequality program here at ODI. Uh, This will be led uh, by Jonathan Rosenthal, the Africa editor of The Economist, who I will turn over to uh, in a minute following uh, the speech. In addition to our fantastic audience here in London, we also have a lot of people following us around the world. And we will invite you all to participate later in the event as well. Uh, If you would like to join the conversation today, we're using the hashtag globalchallenges and our handle is at odidev. But we're gonna start with something very special. Uh, We are greatly honored to have with us today President Amina Fakim of the pre- of uh, the Republic of Mauritius. She is the sixth president of the Republic of Mauritius and its first female president. Uh, she also serves as the co-chair of the Global Commission on the Future of Work. And before joining the State House and ultimately rising to the level of president of her country, she also read led an incredibly impressive career um, as an academic and as a scientist. Uh, so she brings an incredible array of experience and insight into her role as president and also now as co-chair uh, of this incredibly important commission. Uh, so without anything further, I welcome to the podium uh, President uh, Gurib Fakim. Thank you.:
2: Thank you. Esteem excellencies distinguished guests ladies and gentlemen good morning as the chairperson of the ILO global commission on the future of work it is indeed my privilege to be here today to address the particular challenges facing girls and women in the low-paid labor market globally who are the women at the bottom of the labor market well They work across the world in rich and emerging economies, in urban and rural areas, for digital platforms in homes, farms, and factories, and in the informal and formal economies. They come from diverse backgrounds, and yet they have major similarities when it comes to their daily lives and working conditions. Indeed, there remain stubbornly persistent gender differences in pay and in the types of jobs that men and women perform. It is time to eliminate these gaps, and to do so by empowering women to choose more decent jobs. Take, for example, the personal stories of four women that ILO colleagues have met in different parts of the world. Agatha, Lydia, Valyama, and Tania. Agatha, 33, left Poland to work in Germany as a domestic worker. She works for several homes, caring for the elderly and keeping households clean. Her hours are unpredictable from week to week. She works mostly without contracts and often at rates below the minimum wage. From her meager salary, she supports her family back home in the hope of ensuring a more promising future for her children. Lydia. 43, is an indigenous woman from Bolivia who has been working in the construction sector for three years. At the beginning, she was employed through informal contractors and was not paid. So she began working for her own account. Every morning, she gets up early, leaves her daughter at school, and meets with other women builders to offer their services. Valyama, from India, works for 8 to 10 hours a day, starting at 5 a.m making for the trimming of the global shirts for the global brand. She then takes care of her ailing husband and two children. She's one of the 40,000 home workers who are part of the supply chain in the garment manufacturing industry in Tirupur, a busy town in Tamil Nadu. The T-shirts she's making will sell for at least a thousand times more than what she earns but home-based work is not solely present in developing countries. In the United States, the ILO met Tanya, a mother of two. At the age of 42, she had to quit her job to stay home to care for her father. She now works from home as a crowd worker, often earning the minimum wage. These women live and work in vastly different contexts, yet they all work for low pay most of the time less than their male counterparts, and struggle to cope with the double burden of paid and unpaid labor required to care for their families. These challenges transcend nationality, culture, GDP, and workplace. Women, ladies and gentlemen, are overrepresented among the low paid in both developed and developing countries. In Europe, for example, women, make up, on average, 50 to 60 percent of workers in the three pay deciles. Women also suffer from a significant wage penalty throughout the world, ranging from 5 to 30 percent. This pay gap is due, at least in part, to the overrepresentation of women in sectors where their work is undervalued, domestic work and home-based work being two key examples. 80% of domestic workers are women and only half of all domestic workers enjoy a minimum wage protection equal to those enjoyed by other workers. In crowd work the gender wage gap is highest 25% amongst those with the lowest earning. Ladies and gentlemen, women are also more subject to part-time and temporary work. Such jobs are on the rise and have raised concerns about job quality in general, and as they often guarantee only limited or no labor and social protections. Part-time employment, fewer than 35 hours per week, is widespread phenomenon among women in nearly all countries of the world, and their share of all those working part-time is 57%. (laughs) Women employees are also often overrepresented in temporary rather than permanent jobs, ranging from over 20% in some European countries to around 70% in India and parts of Africa. Women are often overrepresented in informal employment, and especially in the most vulnerable forms of employment. This is due at least to the lower access to education, training, economic assets, and other resources. At least 60% of all women in employment are in the informal economy where they are more often found in the most vulnerable situation for instance as domestic workers or home-based workers than the male counterparts the proportion of women contributing to f- contributing family workers another form of vulnerable work is more than three times higher among women in informal employment twenty eight point one percent compared to men eight point seven percent It is in these types of jobs that decent work deficits are most pervasive. They thus face a double penalty, both as women and as informal workers. Such deficit often imply a violation of human rights. Indeed, it is important to note many labor rights are human rights. For instance, the right to rest, to social security, to equal pay, and freedom of association. Ladies and gentlemen, Women are overrepresented in poor quality jobs, in part due to the traditional role as unpaid caregivers. Everywhere in the world, women shoulder more of the care responsibilities. These responsibilities shape their access to labor markets and push them into accepting jobs that are more likely to allow them to conform to their traditional role as caregivers. These tend to be informal, temporary, or with shorter hours due to flexibility to the flexibility that these kind of jobs often afford. For example, women are more likely to enter crowd work because it allows them to perform care duties at the same time. Women at the bottom of the labor market may be particularly vulnerable to violence at work. Women who work in private homes, either in, the, in, the, in their own as home workers or in what the employers, in the case of domestic workers, work behind closed doors and often out of reach of public authorities. This can make them more vulnerable to violence at the hands of other household members. Women who work in male-dominated sectors, such as in construction, are also particularly vulnerable to violence. Ladies and gentlemen, underpinning these conditions is the widespread discrimination that women face in the labor market and beyond as women, but also as members of already marginalized communities, just indigenous people and migrants. Female migrant workers are overrepresented in low-skill occupations, both in comparison with male migrants and with native-born workers. Discrimination pursues women throughout their professional lives pushing them into jobs that are associated with women's work, such as domestic work, resulting in pronounced segregation into occupations that are undervalued. Layered on top of the particular challenges of women in low-paid work worldwide is the reality of the effects of deep learning and artificial intelligence on the human labor force. Technology is driving a skills gap in which there are fewer and fewer jobs for underskilled or low-skilled workers everywhere in the world. In conditions of equality, the empowerment of women workers, that is the capacity to choose what work they perform and under what conditions they perform it, must be the future of work. Ladies and gentlemen, women workers can lead us there and we must create an environment that enables and supports their empowerment. How can this be achieved? While efforts will be required on many fronts, I would like to draw the attention to four broad overlapping approaches. Gender-responsive formalization policies, ensuring equality of treatment, affordable care policies, and the elimination of violence. Women's economic empowerment must be achieved in conditions of decent work, and gender-sensitive formalization policies are a key avenue to achieving this goal. Formalization is about bringing people under the effective protection of the law and thus guaranteeing them access to rights. At the political and institutional level, we must ensure that women are afforded labor and social protections equal to those enjoyed by workers generally. Such strategies have included the extension of labor and social protection to female-dominated sectors that have historically been excluded, such as domestic work. Extension of social protection can include eliminating or lowering threshold on minimum hours, earning or duration of employment, so that workers in part-time and temporary employment are not excluded or making systems more flexible with regards to contributions required to qualify for benefits. Measures of this kind also work to combat discrimination against migrants, indigenous peoples, and other minorities. Ladies and gentlemen, to combat discrimination, which affect all women workers, gender-specific measures can be taken to to ensure equal protections that address the undervaluation of women's work. These can include extension of minimum wages to female-dominated sectors, extending duties on employers to promote gender equality, and ensuring equal treatment for part-time and temporary workers. Providing access to affordable care options can also alleviate women from the double burden of paid and unpaid work. Provision of high-quality and affordable care facilities, women access to formal employment, and would lift the constraints that cause women to choose lower-quality jobs in exchange for the flexibility of staying at home. The investment of the public and private sector in the innovation economy is is also an essential element of raising workforce conditions and increasing economic and human welfare across society. And that's one of the reasons why I serve as chair of the Coalition for African Research and Innovation, known as CARI, and that was recently launched initiative at Davos called the Afro-Champion Initiative. These broad pan-African organizations have been created by private and public stakeholders in recognition that our health and well-being are at the nexus of not just the interdependent, transdisciplinary nature of scientific research, but a part of a broader context at the intersection of nutrition, health, agriculture, environment governance, and the economy. These investments require sustained operational funding, capital support, and the capacity to engage successfully with funders, government policymakers, and communities this in turn will raise the value of work across society creating an environment that enables women to realize their own empowerment also requires shifting discriminatory social norms and ending of violence against women because subject to violence and its various form and even accepting it as a norm shapes how women choose when the face domestic violence, it drives them to work in other people's home, often abroad, as domestic workers. When they face violence at work, it drives them to accept substandard working conditions. And the constant exposure to violence and harassment drives women to accept that such violences are normal, eroding their self-esteem and the belief that they have the right to better work and better life. The pervasiveness of this threat, which is based on widespread gender discrimination, has instigated the process to adopt a new ILO standard on violence against women and men in the world of work. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to conclude by underscoring that women's empowerment should be synonymous with women being unable to represent their own interests and to express their own preferences. Without this capacity, it would be very difficult to speak meaningfully of empowerment because the fate of women would be determined by others. For this reason, the right of women to have a choice to be their own representatives and to gain bargaining power lie at the heart of the opportunity for women to seize their own destinies, not least of all, for for those women working at the bottom of the labor market. I thank you for your attention.
3: Thank you. thank you. very much for that, uh, that uh, uh, very insightful uh, talk. I, uh, I'm going to come back to some of the topics. I think that uh, you, you really raised uh, important issues in terms of uh, placing women uh, at the centre of this, uh, this conversation, so, so thank you for doing that. Um, I see we've been joined by other panellists. Um, I'm also going to thank uh, Alex. I, I, I don't think it's quite necessary for me to go through a very long uh, set of introductions uh, since, since a lot of that's already been done. But uh, you know, we, we've got uh, you know, Myrtle at the far end. Oh, I've dropped something. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, Myrtle at the far end, Louise uh, uh, on, on, on the video, uh, Elizabeth right next to me. Um, we're going to try and keep this uh, sort of as, as informal as possible. So, so I'm, I'm going to ask you to. Uh, be a bit lively when when it comes time to uh, ask some questions. So I'm sure we'll we'll have some lively debate later. Um, uh, but before we get into that, I'm am going to first turn to the author of uh, of, of this paper that we've uh, been discussing. Um, and I guess the first thing that strikes me is is you know when one thinks about this, and certainly when one talks to people in in, in developing countries, th- there really is this view that uh, you know unless it's a formal job in an office or a factory with everything else, it's not a good job. Is that is that yeah. Wrong.
4: No, I mean you're absolutely right. That's the gut, that's the attitude that this is the informal sector is some kind of aberration. It's going to go away. It's a sort of stage of development. Well, I mean we make the point in this paper, and I should start by thanking my co-authors who are in the room: Abigail Hunt, who I think is somewhere over there, and Emma Saman, who's there. Um, we were very clear in this paper that, that the first best approach for providing decent jobs is formal jobs, with you know, secure contracts, secure, you know, the, the decent wages, um, you know, well good recognition, decent working conditions, all those things are really important. However, the paper's also a plea to pragmatism. That's not the starting point for the vast majority of workers already in work. So seven in ten workers in the non-farm economy at the moment in sub-Saharan Africa, but also in um, South and Southeast Asia, are working informally. And I think more importantly, even kind of um, sort of the scale of, of, of the size of the number of people who are going to need to be found jobs, wage employment, is, um, is 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 larger than we have initially thought of anyway. Which sounds complicated. I'll explain. So according to current ILO definitions, there are 200, 000, 200, 000, 200 million people unemployed. Actually, the number of people who want to work, who are looking for jobs, is 10, around 10 times that. That's globally. So there are around 2 billion people, actually, who want to work, and two thirds of whom are women. And the reason they can't find work is because the jobs aren't there. So the scale of the challenge is much bigger than we think. Plus, we know we've got the youth bulge coming down the track, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the number of 15 to 24-year-olds, which is a good proxy for entrance to the labour market, that's going to increase by half again by 2030. So situation is already the majority of people in working in the informal economy, that's likely to grow significantly. So the paper is a plea to kind of, you know, don't let, policymakers don't let the best be the enemy of the good or maybe the enemy of the better. If you're not going to, if the, inform, if the formal economy is not going to be able to absorb that number of current entrants let alone new entrants anytime soon, how is it that working conditions, that wages, that productivity can be increased in the informal economy? And that's what we're looking at. Um, we've divided, I mean, uh, informal workers, it's a very heterogeneous group. So we've divided, we, we've looked at a range of kind of policies and programs that governments, um, uh, local governments, in some cases, NGOs or other sort of programs or projects that are being uh, delivered to people working in the informal economy. What, what's working now, and then a kind of we're saying to, to, to other countries, maybe you might want to look at instead of thinking that the informal sector is something to be got rid of. Maybe there's maybe there's some models here that you can follow. So looking at um, self-employed or, or um, household enterprises. We, we point to the example of, um, on the border of India and Pakistan, there's a number of um, border <coughs> hats, they're called. Um, they're, they're kind of like, um, sorry, India and Bangladesh. They're kind of like um, special enterprise zones. They're sort of trade facilitation points where small, informal workers are helped with cross-border trade. And they've increased wages. Um, they've been so successful that there's now a commitment to um, increase to introduce six more border hats. They've also interestingly uh, improved relationships between the informal workers and the authorities. We look at the example of um, an area in Lima, in Peru, where waste pickers have been given a uniform. So they're kind of identifiably part of a workforce. They've said they feel safer because they have this uniform. But they've also been included in the municipal (coughs) planning processes. So they're, kind of, you know, they're being recognised as actual workers and their needs and priorities are being included in the planning process. We include an example from Ethiopia where this is part actually of a randomised controlled trial. Um, but, but largely unskilled poor women have been given a cash transfer, but also um, kind of business support, mentoring, training. And a year later, they found that their salaries, their wages had increased by a third. Still very low, but there was, had there been a significant increase. We look a little bit at the um, wage-earning sectors, and, um, Amini, you alluded to this earlier, uh, wages for domestic workers. In South Africa, there's been a, a minimum wage introduced for domestic workers. I'm sure Merkel will have something to say about that later. Um, and, and it sounds bizarre. What can, that, you know, it has no enforcement mechanism. And yet, by some, you know, there's been a normative shift, and, and wages have increased by a fifth. Um, and, interestingly, The chances of people having the domestic workers having a formal contract has increased but their levels of employment hasn't decreased so it's it's worked and again if this has worked in one sector maybe this is a model that can be extended to other sectors then we also look at um, some kind of universal protection some of the things that used to be associated with a formal job they can be delinked from a job and actually be protected be protections or benefits that are available to everyone we look at the universal pension i know it's something that mauritius has had since 1958 um, we look at the example of Bolivia. The renta dignidad um, was introduced in 2008. By 2009, it was associated with a, a reduction in rural poverty of six percent. So we're seeing there's a you know a range of policies that are in- effective, that are are increasing productivity. They are increasing wages. And so the, the the paper is a plea to governments to say governments and others to say maybe this is where you need to focus your attention as well as looking at formalisation, structural adjustment and some of the big you know, normative questions of, sort of structural change that need to be delivered as well.
3: Brilliant. I'm, I'm going to ask you just to do one thing in one yeah. minute very quickly, which is uh, quite a lot jumped out in what, what Amina said uh, to me, but I'm, I'm quite <laughs> curious. What was, what was your sort of key uh, takeaway from, from what you heard there?
4: I'm, I'm particularly interested in actually what you're talking about, the violence against workers. I mean, this is clearly, I and mean, we're, we're talking about domestic workers, this is clearly a sector where workers are very much open to abuse. Um, it's, you know, behind closed doors, it's in people's households, other people's households. And I think anything that can help workers increase their agency, their sense that they have some kind of bargaining power in these kind of relationships with their employers, they're not they're not a victim in this. I think that's incredibly important.
5: Myrtle, you you, you
3: have... <laughs> Sort of both, both the experience of having worked in the conditions we're talking about, as well as then organised other women uh, and, uh, I suppose, men as well in in, in, the, in these conditions. What what sort of jumps out at you from uh, a, a sort of uh, the kind of policy prescriptions that you've just been hearing? What works and what doesn't work?
6: Well, I think that. Uh, First of all, I would like to say thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your platform with the President. I think that when it comes to domestic work, I actually get very emotional and very carried away. The reason for that is because I've been a domestic worker, and my life started. and today I'm sitting here because I challenged my employer to ask her, Why am I different than you? I know I'm working for you, I know I'm in your house, but you don't treat me like a person. It's like an object that's in your house. And that is why I'm sitting here today. But what I would actually like to say is so much has changed for domestic workers. But the problem is this, what has changed for domestic workers are basically only on paper. And for us to make that papers become alive, for us to get that papers to work for us, it is a lot of challenging in our way. And I think what happened with our, you know, organizing in South Africa, with the many labor laws we've got in South Africa, and that we do have some of the best labor laws in South Africa on Paper. and then when we moved 2011 and when we won a victory in the ILO. I think that was a real history for domestic workers. For the first time, the ILO was shaken by the voices of domestic workers. For the first time, domestic workers could speak out for themselves. And we called that day, we've won our respect and our dignity. But what is it if we won our respect and our dignity, and it's not being used at our workplaces. So today, we still challenge low minimum wages, we still challenge long hours, we still challenge migrant workers being exploited, we still challenge so many things that is not there for domestic workers. So why did we then form an international domestic workers network? We formed that because we want to show as women, when women come together and women unite, that we will take the world by force, and we did it. Today I'm sitting here, five years later, we're going to have a Congress, we're going to look at what have we achieved. I'm sitting here today as a proud former domestic worker. Today we have 500,000 domestic workers in 65 countries and 65 organizations. But do we stop there? No. A lot of things we must put on paper, like Our Excellency saying, Why is it that domestic workers must always prove themselves we are women, we are mothers, we are wives? Why is it that there's always question marks when anything comes up the table for domestic workers? In South Africa now, they're enforcing a national minimum wage. Again, sorry domestic workers, you cannot get 100%, you're only getting 75%. Why? Yet when my employer and myself walk into that shop, we pay the same price. They're not saying, oh, are you the domestic worker? We're giving you a discount. So what have, So the question is, what have we done? There is so much I can say of domestic workers. But domestic workers on their own, we cannot move mountains. We need all of you. We need all of you to support our struggles. We need the presidents of the countries to stand up for us. We're moving to gender-based violence. Our Excellency has said it is there every day in the domestic sector. But it's a hidden subject. Because as soon as a domestic worker comes in, because she's staying on the premises of the employer, she gets scared because now she's going to lose that home, she's going to lose the little room that she, and yet she's working to send money home to her family. So our challenges that we're facing, why are we still the informal workers? What is our work we're doing every day? Isn't that not formal that we're doing? Because we care for their homes, we are looking after their children, we are social workers, we are doctors, we are everything, because they are working building the economy, Here they say we don't add to the building of the economy. But if we're not there in the houses of some of you also, how would you go out and build the economy? So the challenges for us now is, yes, how do we say that our work is formal work? How do we make it formal? Two years ago we adopted the slogan, domestic work is decent work. But it's still not decent work. It's still so you are a servant, you are a nanny, you are a maid, you are just a migrant worker. So the challenges there for us is, how do we make domestic work seen as work, like all other work? How do we make domestic workers seen as human beings? And how do we see the domestic workers as a decent work? And the slogan that we call ourselves, that we are proud of, our work, make all work possible, because without our work, there won't be any other work, because in South Africa, I know domestic work is still slavery because our employees are so lazy in South Africa, they won't be able to do their own work because they don't even know where to start, but what I would like to say to you here, I am proud that I've been a domestic worker. It has made me what I am. I am proud that today I can speak out for domestic workers because I know that pain of being isolated, but our challenges is going on. We need you. You know, I always say it's nice to listen to us. I always say it's nice to talk about us, but what are we doing for the domestic sector? How do we go back or ensure in our country that we go to the domestic workers' organization and we ask the domestic workers, what can we do for you? It's not always about money. It's about a support. And for that I want to leave you, how are you going to assist us? What are you going to do to that one day I can also say, our work is formal work. I'm so proud of that. But the challenges we have to overcome, the little wages, the minimum wages, the, you know the system where they still take away our passports, where we are dehumanised because we are not people, that is still there, it's there every day. In many countries we are, when we go, you, you feel so hopeless because you don't know what to tell domestic workers, you don't know, you cannot give them freedom, it's only that country. So our challenge here remains to challenge countries, to talk to countries, to talk to presidents, that's why I'm so glad we've got the president there, to talk to them. What can we do in your country? How can we better the life of domestic workers? And that's my question, what I want to say is, help us, help us, so that our work is formal work, and that we get decent pay for decent work. Thank you.
3: (laughs) Myrtle, thank you. I'm I'm gonna leave you with a question that that we're gonna come back to when when the floor opens. But I just, uh, I'm just really curious. We're talking a lot about you know sort of the laws, minimum wages, etc. And I'm just very curious to find out what happens. Uh, you know, you, you pass a, a, a sort of well thought out law, but or, or minimum wage, but what is happening in the kind of uh, uh, sort of privacy or, or, or secrecy of the household? So, so I'm going to come back to that. But in the meantime, I'd like to bring in Louise because uh, uh, then there we go, Louise. I'm, I'm sort of looking at the screen rather than you. I'm not <laughs> sure which way to look. Uh, you know, your research has really covered some of, some of the kind of more abstract uh, uh, questions around the difficulties in policymaking and what, what governments should be doing uh, when addressing some of these issues. And, and I just wonder if you can give us a few of the key sort of I- issues uh, in, in trying to get governments to uh, uh, grapple with these issues.
7: First of all, I want to say that I'm glad that ODI is really engaging so uh, pragmatically in this uh, space, in this uh, policy space and uh, research space. Um, I, lo- I read the paper. I like the paper. Um, you know, this the idea of pragmatism in this space, I think, is finally uh, starting to reach people. Uh, pol- uh, policymakers, researchers, stakeholders in developing countries. I mean, you quote uh, Marty Chen and her work and the Regal Network has been arguing for this kind of pragmatism for decades. Um, I myself, I think, have been arguing for it for about a decade. So I'm glad to see that this picture is, is coming on board because indeed, um, it's in f- we, we know for a fact Um, that the share of workers in informal work really only declines with two things. um, A slower growing labor force, uh, and that goes back to demographics and fertility, and structural change, more capital, more technology, more management uh, in the economy. And that takes time. So what are we going to do in the meantime? Now, so what would I advise policymakers well, the first thing I would say is that most policymakers don't actually know enough about this sector because they don't collect data on it, because formal sector work is supposed to be the only work that's valuable. Um, and so this prejudice against this kind of work shows up in international statistical standards. And, you know, analysis of this work is really not using the right techniques. Um, and I. So I think that's the first point is find out who your workforce is, where they're working, why they're working, where they're working, what are their working conditions, um, what makes them have low pay or low earnings, and what can you do about it? That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is, and I'm really glad um, to hear uh, from the about the domestic work um uh, speaker to hear from her personal experience um, because, you know, I would say that, um, Myrtle, I don't know how many policymakers you've talked to, but probably not enough. Um, this solutions to this problem can't be top down, they just can't. Um, I would say policymakers need to engage and all stakeholders, donors, policymakers, whomever, really need to build and support effective structures for collective action and collective voice. Uh, The the top-down programs and top-down kind of regulations on the book don't really help. I'm sure, Myrtle, if you had more time, you would have some ideas about how South Africa could enforce its great laws better you would have some ideas about how workers, uh, domestic workers can find out more about their rights. I think that's also true about other policies such as social protection. Um, I remember interviewing a bunch of uh, market uh, people, women and men and, and other people, craftsmen in the informal sector in Ghana, shortly after they introduced their informal sector pension. And none of them really thought it was a good idea, would help them. And I thought to myself, wow, did the government in Accra and all those guys in suits actually interview these people and find out what they wanted, instead of just sort of offering a product that they that they may or may not want? Um, so they were much happier about health insurance, for example, than social protection. So maybe we need to start there, who knows? And then finally, I would stress um, the heterogeneity um, which was also mentioned in the paper. I would say there are some categories, and we can lump people into categories and try to um, understand what works to improve the conditions of work. That is um, the stability of earnings, um, and the um, and the amount of earnings, and the quality of work um, for different categories. And. You know, the situation of domestic workers is fundamentally different, of course, from women who are hairdressers in their home or um, or market women. And so it, it's important to understand the differences. they are different issues. Finally, one point I think which is often left out, we think about, okay, I would say if you look at the majority of programs for this sector, they're all about training. Training, training, training. Everybody needs training, training, training. training, training. Okay, why don't we look at urban policy, for example. I remember having a discussion years ago with the mayor of Dar es Salaam, and I said, this is how many households are engaged in the informal sector work, either at home, in their own work, uh, in their own home, or in markets, or just walking the street. And I said, "Um, in your new fancy um, Dar es Salaam 2030 plan, um did you plan for space for these people space to work because your city's growing at 6% and these people this this sector is going to grow at 6% too and you can't just have a few little here and there so i really think we need to spend a lot more time um on urban policy and access secure access to workplace that means a workplace where you can Um, leave your stuff where you have electricity, where you have water, where it's safe, where the police are part of the solution, not part of the problem. Uh, These are issues that we should also be, uh, I think, taking up. I liked in the paper the discussion and the linkage between urban employment and informal employment and informal housing. And that, again, goes back to uh, urbanization and urban policy and whether we're adequately Uh, considering or engaging um, this group. So I think I'll stop now, but that's sort of what's on my list right now.
3: Louise, thank you you very much for that. That was really interesting. Um, uh, I mean, I'm coming back to you. Uh, A couple of references have already been made to, to, uh, uh, for instance, the pension policy that that your government has introduced. Um, I'd I'd like to just ask you how, how so w- w- why did the government introduce that, and how illustrative is it, or how useful has it been in terms of trying to extend some of the, ooh, some of the social protection uh, that, that you spoke about earlier uh, into, into informal uh, workers?
2: Uh, thank you. Um, well, you mentioned the pension policies. I think recently we also introduced the minimum wage. In Mauritius, right across the board, and even uh, domestic workers also uh, part. They will also, of course, be benefiting from the minimum wage. Now, just to go back again to uh, the social protection in Mauritius, we offer not just for the pension. We also have a social uh, safety net for those who are vulnerable. We also offer, in terms of the social benefits, we also offer free education and free healthcare and uh, recently free transport as well for school to get uh, for kids to go to school and for the elderly as well now this uh, policy and also very early on immediately after independence uh, we adopted a fairly rigid uh, family planning um, but now this is going against us because now we have an aging population uh, but i think what the uh, uh, the thinking fathers at the time had in mind is that uh, if we want to change the dynamic, if we want to change the prosperity of the people in Mauritius, we need to have this basic social security net, and that includes education. Because education, we know, is the biggest enabler. It's a social enabler uh, that the world knows. And I think we also a good example of how this has happened, because uh, immediately after independence, the per capita was, about $200? And now we are among the highest in, on the continent. Now, how did this happen? It didn't happen uh, just by. By what we call increase in the Mauritian miracle? There is no miracle. It was a, it was a, a systematic, uh, uh, consistent. Um policy that has been thought uh, in order to bring uh, this to bear in terms of the change now how this has happened is that with an educated workforce we managed to start a fledgling industrialization which has then morphed into the industrial uh, financial services and banking and computer science and uh, you know IT in terms of a service so all these have been thought of and uh, we have seen the transformative uh, power of this social protection uh, in our country and this is a think a messaging that uh, we can send out. But more importantly, we are an ethnically diverse population and we have shown to the world that through education, through mutual dialogue, through interfaith, intercultural dialogue, we can become also a beacon to the world in terms of uh, living together. So this is what I think is also very important in terms of the social stability of our country that this is possible and doable.
3: I'm going to push you a little bit on this because uh, I, we, we all know the old joke about uh, you know politics and sausage making and you don't want to look too closely, but but clearly there must have been a lot of sort of squeezing and grinding and, and, and whatever it is in, in trying to get these policies through. And, I, and, and I'm just quite, keen to get a a sense of what was some of the kind of political dynamic in in, in trying to bring in social protections, minimum wages and the like? How how easy is it to generate a consensus?
2: Well, the ones that were taken, I think was before I was born, but what I can experience is that I can tell you is in terms of education, because I'm a net beneficiary of this. Now, just like any innovative idea, it went through the cycle of it is stupid, it became dangerous, and now it's become obvious. So it went through the same process. So uh, the same thing happened in 1975 when uh, this decision was taken. It was enacted in 76, and people say, "Oh, this is not going to work uh, because uh, we're not prepared for it. It would make the country bankrupt. But again, I must stress on the fact that expenditure in education is not an expense. It's an investment. And we understood that from a very early early age, education ed- investment in social protection in health in education they are not expensive and this is something the narrative has to change because it's an investment that we make and almost 30 percent of our gdp goes into this service and
3: I, I, I know you, you've all got questions on the floor so forgive me but i'm just gonna i'm gonna push you one inch further which is just politics is about trade-offs what what couldn't you do what couldn't your country do in making those trade-offs that, it, that, it, that it, that to, to, to prioritise, for instance, education?
2: Well, there was no trade-off at all. I mean, we, we, we thought that these were priorities and we had to do it, and we have not compromised on this. And as I said, maybe something that we need to rethink again is uh, the, 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 strategy, the policy for family control, for birth control. But now we have an aging population because Africa, we are increasingly saying you know, 18 to 20, we have an average 45. Uh, So we have to rethink this policy and and see how now to benefit from uh, uh, contractual workers because increasingly we are getting a lot of our sectors which is going with uh, uh, migrant workers. We are talking about migration. We get a lot of people from overseas coming into Mondays. But again, this is a policy that we have to really look at because we need talent. Uh, We know that in breeding is not healthy, so we need to have this new blood, new ideas, so that because the, the ambition of Mauritius now is to go into the knowledge economy, and knowledge economy, of course, brain power, and this has to be re-looked into that so that we create the appropriate portion, it's not just for, uh, for, for uh, expatriates, but also for our diaspora to come back. So we have the responsibility of creating the enabling environment to make it uh, such that these people will want to come back and work there.
3: Brilliant. I'm going to open this to uh, questions from the floor. Um, I'll, I'll, we can take them in small groups, perhaps two or three at a time. If you would just be so kind as to tell us who you are and you know, sort of what your affiliation is. Uh, so, Do I have any questions? Do I see any hands? I see a hand over there. Do we have a roving mic? So a woman over there. Uh, wave it wildly. And then number two here in the
0: Hi, my name is Sarah Montgomery. I work at CAFOD. <clears throat> um, I'm just really interested to know from the panel. So yeah, it was such a really interesting discussion. Thank you. Um, if we're thinking about the the kind of double crisis that we're facing, so on the on the social side, we've got this, this massive problem of unemployment, like you're saying, and increasing unemployment, but also underemployment really being the, one of the biggest challenges. But then on the other side of things, we've got the, the environmental cha- crisis that we're facing and kind of increasingly pushing towards planetary boundaries, increasingly pushing towards a space where there just aren't the resources to, to sustain the type of work we're doing, the type of jobs, all of that sort of thing. So I'm interested in hearing from the panel, when you bring those two things together, how do we think about work, livelihoods, jobs, informal, formal, that really tackles the priority that the Sustainable Development Goals raises of tackling these two challenges together, of not just more jobs, but also decent jobs, also green jobs.
3: Brilliant, thank you. There was another question over here. Uh, If We could have the mic this way. Uh, In the in the pinkish top. Oh, <laughs> oh sorry. Are <laughs> oh, the other hands that I'm missing? Uh, but there Some we go. Thank you. Some would
8: call it salmon, but that's OK. I'll go with pink. <laughs> Thank you so much. My name is Shauna Olney. I'm with the International Labour Office. And I just wanted to thank the panel for the references to the ILO. Um, there's a lot that we're doing that's obviously very relevant to the work that's um, going on in this paper and in and the discussion of the panel. I wanted to just mention, we seem to be discussing formal-informal as if it's some kind of dichotomy, which it isn't. It's very much on a continuum. Mm -hmm. And I think this idea of pragmatism is a very good one. As long as we keep pushing the boundary towards formal, we may not get there, but we need to keep pushing in that direction. And Louise, you made the comment about the public spaces, um, and Myrtle, you talked about the the home and how we have to protect there, and Convention 189 on, on domestic workers. That was that changed the whole conversation around domestic work. We are going to have, hopefully, um, instruments on violence and harassment in the world of work and looking at groups that are more vulnerable to to violence and harassment in that context. And I think some of the groups we talked about already today are, are part of that discussion. That could potentially change the conversation completely as well and get it on the national Um, Agendas. So just a couple of things, the the recommendation 204 on formalizing the informal economy I think is really important in the context of what we're discussing today. Hopefully the violence instrument if it comes to pass and we actually have a treaty on violence and harassment by 2019 could be very exciting. Um, And the issues that you raised as well, minimum wages, other sorts of things are really about pushing along that continuum. So let's be pragmatic, but let's keep pushing for the ideal, pushing for what is really decent work and not compromising on that. Thank you.
3: Great, so a a plea for pragmatism, thank you. Uh, Question right here in the front.
9: Thank you, hi, my name is Michelle Chivunga. I I work with the University of Surrey Center for Digital Economy looking at emerging technologies. And then I also have my own business as well as an entrepreneur. Um, thank you to the panel for the really interesting um, conversation so far, and for your, your Excellency or your points that you made um, around this agenda. My question really is very much around: do we are we creating an, enough of an enabling environment across Africa in terms of you know allowing for um, for, for, for engagement, but also allowing for education, as you as you mentioned earlier on all across Africa? I know in Mauritius, you know, we we're slightly further ahead. Uh, but are we creating that same environment across Africa? And if not, uh, what else can we do to really place an emphasis on that? Because I think it's really important we, we engage on the education side. Uh, and, and then also I wonder your thoughts around the new emerging technologies like blockchain and the opportunities you know that are there with blockchain. And then also to you, thank you very much for your um, feedback as well i uh, really, really inspired by your story, and I'm also wondering in terms of what your thoughts are around using technology to really raise the voice uh, around the issues that we are talking about, thank you. Thank you, I, I,
3: I know I said three, there's, sorry, one over here, and then I'll come to you later. But so one right at the back, is straight in front of me, if that's, if you'd wave your hand, thank you.
4: Thank you very much, um, I'm Olivia Cox, I work for the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales. Um, Just picking up on a previous question about the Global Goals for Sustainable Development, um, I'm just just sort of interested to know, particularly with Goal 8, Decent Work and Economic Growth, and Gender Equality. Are those, does the panel think that uh, the targets are sort of realistic? Um, Is your work aligned to the Global Goals at all? Um, Forgive me if you'd mentioned them, but I haven't heard much about the Global Goals in your discussions. And just finally, I just want to say, a very, very interesting and fascinating discussion. So thank you very much.
3: Great, thank you. So, so I think we can chunk these questions, and I'm going to ask you to to, to, to address part of it to start. And, and and that is just the kind of the balance between uh, pragmatism and not, and, yeah. and good jobs and environment. Uh, yeah,
4: sure. So thanks very much for that, Sean. I mean, I, I totally agree. This is not about letting governments off the hook. Governments and others, but it's the governments who've you know, signed up to the Sustainable Development Goals where the explicit commitment to get decent work for all by 20, all, underlined all, with with a prioritisation for the poorest and the most marginalised, the people we've been talking a lot about today. This is the leave-no-one-behind commitment where, you know, expressly governments have said they will fast-track and prioritise action for people who have uh, been left behind. This is absolutely not to say that governments are off the hook from doing all the things that they need to do to, uh, to create the right enabling environment to allow <coughs> decent work to be developed. I would also add though that, um, you know, it's not, it, it, clearly this isn't just a, uh, an issue for governments, it's about the private sector as well, and, 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 and the governments have to create the right enabling environment for the private sector. But it, but it is saying then how can you improve in the short term and the immediate term how can you make the best of the work, the, you know, the, the vast majority of the kind of places where we find poor and marginalised people working at the moment. And it's about, as, as Louise was saying and others have been saying, listening to what people working right at the bottom of the labour market think and want and need and prioritise and delivering to those demands as quickly as possible whilst also trying to introduce structural transformation so you're moving you know, jobs up the sort of productivity Scale so you know that that remains the that remains the holy grail.
3: Thanks. I'd like to bring Louise in as well on on, on that. Just I, I mean I guess I suppose the questions of the balance between between pragmatism and and and, and, uh, and policy and uh, and I suppose again the question of uh, how this aligns with all the other other objectives and goals.
7: Well, thank you. Um, obviously, first the SDGs. Uh, are an aspiration, they're a stretch target. They, in a way they had to be. Who wants a, a tar- why should we have a target that's easy to meet? Um, countries have to stretch and find new ways. And not just on on work and on gender, but as was mentioned on education. The education target says it's no longer enough to have kids on the seats, they have to be learning something. So I think in all, in all areas, Um, the targets are really important. And uh, as with the MDGs, all countries won't always meet the targets. And of course, the definition of decent work has some absolute notions like it absolutely uh, can't involve violence and slavery and a number of things. But then it also has some relative notions in terms of um, uh, share of... uh, relative to countries, GDP, et cetera, and and relative to poverty lines. So um, those um, elements are are important as well. So will everybody make the SDGs? No. Should we push to make the SDGs? Yes. Uh, My point really is that too often uh, governments, uh, stakeholders, donors are really just focused on the formal sector. There is absolutely no doubt that uh, low and lower middle income countries where I work need more private investment in labor intensive enterprises to provide better jobs. And um, there's no, that will take time. In the meantime, we have to stop ignoring the rest of the people and we have to have pragmatic policies to deal with them i think for example the movement toward universal health insurance and decoupling health insurance with wages will go a long way um, let's solutions have to be found um because they it, you know it's a it's a new area how to do this um, countries are some countries are leading the way and we have to and they're not perfect and they're not reaching everyone at once but we have to celebrate the ones that have tried something new and achieved it uh mauritius uh, initially uh everybody said how could this island uh, country manage itself well it showed it found a way it showed it Got the private investment, it grew, it changed, the structural transformation happened, and now it's celebrated as an example.
3: Great, thank you. Merkel, I'm gonna to come to you. How does one, and can technology, uh, do uh, help raise the voice of those whose voices are silent? The Can
6: technology uh, help uh, raise the oh, voices
3: yeah. I of- I think that
6: you know, domestic workers today are very educated And many employers actually give us a cell phone because they want to be in contact with us daily. So we actually, in our unions and in our federation, we teach domestic workers now how great is technology. With the result, that is how we're building our international federation. That is how we're building in our countries, our organizations, by putting messages on, you know, on SMS, Twitter, and everything also. We, we see that we have a very good relationship with media. So whenever something is happening and something is happening for domestic workers, like in South Africa, you wake up in the morning, you'll see domestic workers have a new wage. So now quickly you have to let domestic workers know so we have a contact base where we have domestic workers on our cell phones, and then we send this message, and we build up something with Vodacom and MTN, and that's how we actually educate domestic workers in South Africa and in the world. That is the whole role of the International Domestic Workers Federation, is to educate domestic workers to speak up for themselves. But there was one question you asked me about the privacy. I think that is actually something you work alone. You think alone. You stay alone. You're not allowed to have your children. You're not allowed to have your husband. And when something goes wrong in that house, it is your word against the employer. And the employer always wins. Because there's nobody that's going to protect you, you need to protect yourself. And that is something that we're working on now also in the International Domestic Workers Federation. How do we actually empower domestic workers? How do we empower them to speak out for themselves? You know, I'm still waiting for the day when women will will just stand in front of employer and say, Look at me. I did it. They can do it. Look at me. I'm exactly like you. I might be poorer. And also the other question. Why is there domestic workers in this world today? Because of poverty? Because we are not educated? Because many times there's six children and we are the ones that must go out and work? In South Africa it was based on our color, they couldn't classify us, who are we and what are we? I think that is also, and you were talking about education. Yes, we need to start education, but not education how to cook better, how to clean the house better, education to understand technology properly, education to work on computers to drive to do things. And then it really, our work will be decent work. That is what it's all about.
3: Thank you. There was a question
2: over here. Did you just quickly respond? Yes. Sorry. Yes. Of about course. About uh, education. My apologies. No worries. Um, I've just listened to a little bit on, on the Skype there to, for uh, the uh, the MDGs and now the SDGs. Now, if you look at the SDGs, uh, the overarching messaging is that leaving no one behind. Now, if we are to get the SDG 8 addresses the, wor- the world of work, but to get to SDG 8, there are also the other, including 8, the seventeen SDGs, which will eventually create uh, a better world, stretching, of course, uh, ourselves to us to deliver on the SDGs. Having said this, uh, one of the questions, one of the SDGs is for food security, for example, and I'm very happy to see Marie is here for Food Forever, driving uh, SDGs 2.5 for food security, but education. Now you've asked a question as to whether you know what is the system. We've always had education in Africa, but what kind of education was there during, uh, well, I say 50 years back, because this, of course, responds to the post-colonial history of most African countries. The education that was given was to create a certain cadre of civil servants. But now, are we empowering our youth with the appropriate education? I mean, this is something that we have to. to to bring on board all the time because I I was saying earlier on that uh, when we have, uh, we have young children, children who are about to be born, they will be working in areas that don't exist right now. Now, how do we prepare these kids for this for this kind of work? Now, is our g- education system going to be the same formatted education we've had before, or are we going to teach kids to get out of root learning and to empower these kids to solve problems? And in fact, last week, I mean, I was just listening to Jack Ma last week, he said at Davos that we will not be able to teach our kids to compete with machines. They will be outsmarted all the time. Now, what kind of education? How do we make these kids relearn or unlearn what they have done so far, so as to be able to adapt in this in this dystopian world we are facing up to? So this is the kind of thing that we have to to bring. Is the African is African uh, uh, of African leaders aware to this? They are increasing, rising up, waking up to this new reality because Africa is going to be the youngest continent with a workforce of about two billion people. So we have. We have this uh, responsibility and I'm very pleased to say that you bring, we need government, yes, we need government, but we need also government in terms of enacting the right policies so that when we have deregulation in terms of AI, the disrupting uh, power of communication and and, and technology, how do we bring government to bear uh, to enact the appropriate regulatory framework that these very same people who are going to be you know, trodden down on, by, they will benefit from the impact of AI and, of course, artificial intelligence and, and, all, and all that comes with technology. So the downside of technology is that it will precisely be disrupting the work, the world of work, as we know it today. And how do we empower? How do we empower the youth, the regulatory, the government, and how do we prepare them for this new reality, the new normal, as we call it? This is, I think, the, the conversation we need to have now and again to come back to the question of uh, uh, green for all uh, the old downside that we have the negatives i see opportunities coming out there so there is new job to be created in renewable energies and but having said this we still need we are talking about the tax regime we still need to see to it that people pay the taxes we still need to see that corporates also bring in the the average percentage because when we walk about when we talk about people's productivity they need to be empowered with proper health proper uh, you know security of employment so they need to have this but of course we also need to have funds for infrastructure and until we get this recipe right we will still be witnessing a disbalance in, in the whole
8: world.
4: And just to say, I really like the point you're making that these are about productive investments. Exactly. But, you know, in the, too often in the past, governments have thought that expenditure on health and education and social protection it's just an outlay. And I think the evidence base is becoming much clearer that this is about developing you know a productive, healthy society.
3: Yes. Could we go uh, on, on the edge here? Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Might-
10: My name is Ken Bluestone, I work for Age International, and I'd just like to um, begin by applauding um, the report, and which I look forward to reading in detail, but also the discussion, which is being framed very much in terms of pragmatism. Um, and recognizing that, um, rather than say that this is the aberration from work, this is a part of the society we live in. We have to come to terms and grips with it. And I want to call attention, in that spirit of pragmatism, one of the groups which is often um, forgotten and left behind in these discussions, which is older women and men. Um, this is extremely important because the way we frame our thinking about economic activity is that we draw an arbitrary line in the ground, in the sand, that says that once you reach a certain chronological age, you become inactive, you become unproductive, you become dependent to society. And and, and nothing could be further from the truth because what we see increasingly across all sectors of society, across all countries, is that one of the things that underpins the formal economic Uh, economy sometimes is actually the unrecognized, uh, unvalued, and unsupported activities, economic activity of older women and men. So, um, and Mauritius is a shining beacon in terms of having come to grips with this, but it's more than just providing a social pension, which we think is absolutely crucial to this, is how do you provide also the conditions in which older women and men are recognized and their access to decent work is also valued. So the question is, how can we bring this much more central into these discussions?
3: Thank you, Ken. If you you wouldn't mind passing along, there was another question just further. uh, Let's take the, yes, on the end here and then
11: at the back there. Hi, uh, my name is Pins Brown. Um, I do various things, but I'm here today on behalf of ASOS, the clothing retailer which sources in Mauritius, and I have a question and a comment. I'll I'll start with a comment, but it picks up really what you're saying, which I don't think we it's very it was a very interesting discussion, I think everyone said that. But the undervaluing of what is typically women's but not always women's labour and how do we so the policy discussion and getting governments to do what they need to do, but it it's still a leap to get people to see that domestic work and other at home but you know, it's not just pin money the decades that, I um, and I'm only 44, and I've been having this discussion for two decades, so how long others have been having it, and how we can, what can we do about that as well, the need to just recognize it as work. So the, the conversation between you and your employer, where somehow that person's work is work, but your work isn't work. And how do we, do we need a public campaign about that? Could the ILO do that? I don't know, but there's something about the valuing of that work. It's work of economic value in the ILO definition, so I think that, that's my comment. My question really is, you know, ASOS is, is one retailer, a big retailer, for people who know them and, and others who don't, who are over a certain age, you've never heard of them. So <laughs> that's a, a bit different. But uh, they're one company sourcing in Mauritius. Mauritius is one com- country. You touched on Tirupur in India. There's there's all sorts of global sourcing. What does the private sector need to do about this? So there's policy for government, but you know, putting in a minimum wage, great. Does that mean everybody leaves the country because it's cheaper in somewhere else? So my question really is, what do you do about that? That doesn't at least affect domestic workers. The House, thank God, cannot move, (laughs) so that's one one blessing. But that's my question really, what can the private sector do to support women and men in precarious employment?
3: Great, thank you. I'm gonna take one more question from this block, which was slightly neglected, and and we'll come back there in the next round, but one at the back here, and then uh, let's go to the panel.
12: Hi, uh, Emily Benson from the Green Economy Coalition. Um, I just wanted to pick up the theme of Green and decent jobs again, um, and um, you know, given that governments are facing this this sort of threat or, or question of how to better steward their environment and increased informality or increased workers in the informal sector, I just wondered what is the role of it, of government in actually generating. Jobs as well, not just providing regulation and policy, but a- in actually generating jobs. And I'm thinking in the context of the South Africa Working for Water programs or the India rural employment schemes. And I just wondered, what is the verdict on those kind of schemes where they're trying both to answer the need to better steward the environment and also provide jobs for informal and um, marginalised communities? Great. I'm, I'm, I'm going
3: to come back to our panel for this and, and, and ask for some some quick volunteers, unless you'd like to. But uh, What is the role of the private sector? How do we deal with older people? Yeah,
4: Yeah. let let me take on the the private sector question first, because I think that's a really important one. Thank you for raising it. and, and and the reason why i think it's so important is that in some areas 50% of people working informally are actually working in the formal sector so they're working for a company with a job with a with a with a you know formal salary or, with a, or a regular wage or they have a contract the ways in which we would define kind of formal employment but they're actually working informally in that they are. Um, their jobs are precarious. They may be temporary. they may the the contract may be um, a temporary one. Even if it, they have a contract in place, it's not a full um, permanent kind of contract. So this is the the, the the focus on the private sector here is really important. Um, I mean, lots of the kind of policies and programmes we talk about in the paper w- would be equally applicable to an employer of a larger organisation looking at the, the p- sort of more vulnerable workers within their organisation. But I would say the key one is encouraging, allowing nay encouraging worker organization because again we go back to the question that that Louise raised that Myrtle you've raised is really understanding what it is that people want to need what are their priorities and making sure that then you're allowing them sort of a a, you're, you're either catalyzing you're allowing them the space to kind of bring their issues to bear and to be understood what you know what their needs are to be met.
2: I'll just make a quick confession here because I think I'll breach two comments that have been made, one from Merkel and, of course, one of the gentleman here. We're talking about the contribution of the elderly and we're talking about the contribution of uh, the, the workers. Well, I must say that I'm sitting here. It's been possible because of the contribution of precisely workers at home for me and also the contribution of my parents. Because if I didn't get, and of course now, I still need uh, people to look after my elderly parents who live with me. So I have to say that I recognize and I value, and uh, I wouldn't have been able to do it if I didn't have house help and house support. So that's what I have to say. In terms of uh, the advancement of women in uh, whatever area, whatever careers they want, they still need to have house help, house support, and if you can bring in, of course, the elderly through parents, and so I think we go for a better world. Thank you.
3: I'm gonna squeeze in another round. There are some very vigorous hands towards the back (laughs) over there, (laughs) one over here. So should we go one at the back over there, two over here, and then perhaps three standing up? So whoever was number one waving vigorously at the back, there we go, keep waving.
13: Hi, so I'm Gemma Friedman and I work at the Trades Union Congress. Um, so I feel there's a bit of a, it's been touched upon, but I feel there's a bit of an elephant in the room in a way, um, which gets to the uh, quite a lot of the root cause about why the informal economy is quite so prolific. And I think that if we look at the public sector and what has been what governments, particularly in developing countries, but of course it's all backwashes as well uh, and stems from countries like the UK, is about the public sector and how the public sector as an employer, it's just decimated. The public sector is also a contractor that creates the jobs and provides for good regulation. And because austerity and neoliberalism exist in the way it does, Again, the public sector governments—they don't have the power. So you have, so you have the IFIs um, in Washington, who have been telling businesses and governments for years through the ease of, of doing business. And the chief economist uh, resigned last week, I think it was, because the methodology of this was so flawed. That actually, you know, the public sector is bad, and that. Uh, And that regulation is bad and that you get ranked as one of the best businesses, um, or or, or uh, sorry, one of the best countries if your ease of doing business is atrocious when it comes to workers' rights. So actually, it's fine. You can talk about informal being the, the new normal. It's been the new normal for a very, very long time in some ways, but in other ways, it's. It's perhaps unhelpful to talk about it like that.
3: Thanks, It's Gem- much Gem-
13: greater than that. Do you agree or disagree? Brilliant, thank
3: you. Thank you. I'm going to stop you there. <laughs> Question two. Uh, could we have a mic over here? Whoever, is there just the one mic in the middle?
5: Uh, I was going to have a follow-up. Uh, sorry, one. okay. Yeah. Let's take you as number two then. Yeah, thank you. Um, so Andy Rutherford from the Asia-Europe People's Forum. Um, following on from what Gemma said, uh, essentially... Um, 30 years of, this, uh, of a, um, a committed discussion to do with decent work. And it's a deep sadness to hear the fantastic presentation from Your Excellency the President that it, we could have, we, the situation has got worse, not better, over those 20, 30 years of this discussion. Um, poverty has increased, exploitation has increased, and um, the key difference we have in the discourse is, is Myrtle. Yeah. Um, and having been proudly working with women workers' organisations, informal sector organisations across the last 15 years, without that voice, and without that voice being allowed legally and respected and supported by all means possible, then I'm a fear that the precariousness of work will only get worse, which is what is happening. Right. If we step out this door, we have 1.7 million million people on informal sector, informal work contracts, official contracts, in the so-called formal sector. As you mentioned earlier, the divide between informal and formal has been, it doesn't help us. We have to go back to the principles of work, decent work, livelihoods, and also the ability for citizens actively to organize for their rights. Without that, we'll be here 20 years time and have a same and more depressing and sad discussion. Sorry. Thank you, Andy. Uh, If we could get the mic over here, please.
14: Thank you, my name is Rachel Noble. I'm from ActionAid UK. Um, We've heard how there's clearly no dichotomy between informal and formal work. And I'd like to point out, there's also no clear progression from um, informal, into formal And we see this in many countries with large export manufacturing sectors creating what what one would assume to be formal jobs, but actually because of competition between um, export manufacturing companies for investment, which serves to drive down labor costs, drive down labor standards, you're seeing increasing outsourcing and informalization of what once were possibly more formalized forms of work. And again, this impacts women um right across the board in many ways more severely. Um, and so this goes, you know, looking at taking a step back, looking at looking at the kind of macro level, international, regional level in terms of trade and investment deals, what can be done at that level to to get away from this perpetual race to the bottom that we that we seem to be locked into. Um, I'd be very interested to hear Her Excellency's reflections in this regard with respect to um, your region. Thank Great, you. Great.
3: Thank you, Rachel. And we're going to take the uh, standing up at the back there, uh, a reward for <laughs> physical <laughs> labour, and then, uh, and then we're going to come back to the panel. Thanks
15: very much. Uh, I'm Caroline Ashley from Oxfam once upon a time from ODI. Uh, And I know our executive director internationally is very glad to be on the Global Commission with you on the future of work. I just wanted to come back to the question of technology. My dad discovered electric light when he went to work with his mum who would clean floors at dawn and he flicked a switch on the wall and the lights came on. But I think we know that in the next decades it's not just plain old electricity, it's a whole range of technology that is going to absolutely transform both formal work and informal work We also know we need to get this conversation out of this room, not just from the people who've been slogging at this for decades, and I really appreciate the decades, but to people who aren't thinking about this. And we know from Davos and everything else we go to, people are thinking about technology and and innovation. Um, And we also know, I think, that technology will bring potential opportunities for informal sector workers, particularly domestic workers. I loved hearing your examples of cascading information but also risks. If you really want to exploit people, technology helps you exploit them better. I heard examples from South Africa w- of an app that enabled domestic workers who are not living, who, who travel, to travel more easily to their next job, but it also gave their, their bosses the chance to rate them, and that increased the boss's power in saying, oh, you didn't do a good job, I'm rating you low, and that undermined them further. So I'm just wondering, are we doing enough to link the two conversations and be really engaged in the technology development debate, saying this poses risks and opportunities for informal workers, and we want to be right in there shaping how technology develops and and having that voice in that discussion.
3: Great. Thank you. Louise, I'd like to go to you with with, with some of these questions uh, and and perhaps chunk them, and we'll come back to the, the people here. But I suppose the two big chunks or themes that seem to come out are it's all getting worse, number one, and two... Uh, we we need the state to be doing more, or should the state be doing more, uh, either by creating jobs or or, uh, stopping outsourcing. And and I'm keen to get your thoughts on those two uh, controversial uh, suggestions.
7: Well, let me just say that I uh, work at research and work uh, in low and lower middle income countries. So there are people who may think it's all getting worse in... Um, industrial countries, in rich countries, and that may be true. But in low-income countries, low and lower middle-income countries, it's not all getting worse. We've done, uh, alleviated a lot of poverty, and we alleviated that poverty by helping people work themselves out of poverty. Um, I'm sure the president of uh, Mauritius can talk about what were the options for people 50 years ago in Mauritius, and what are the options today? 50 years ago, they were certainly not science and technology and all of the things that you're uh, you're pushing into um, and and competing with in in international value chains. Um, now, I do think that there has there. I think the pressure on private sector. Companies and global value chains to worry about the conditions of work in their uh, in their factories that are producing for them in developing countries has really done a lot. In other words, I'm arguing for fair trade, but I'm also talking about the Nike standards and um, uh, and for the garment sector, et cetera, et cetera, and I. Um, i think it's done a lot and i don't think you've seen jobs shrink in South Asia because they've had to comply with those standards um, that just hasn't been the evidence having said that um i think we need to focus on what prob so it's not all regulation and all uh that that, that makes everything bad um, and certainly um this there is a role of both the private sector and NGOs as watchdogs for the private sector um, and the state having said that um, I think we need to also be aware that there are some problems about power and agency especially for women but other um, some uh, excluded ethnicities etc that are outside of the labor market and they we can't blame the labor market for them Um, in other words Uh, Why do women, women are the biggest uh, uh, group that has benefited from the India um, rural employment scheme, but why do they need that? If the norms about women working were different in India, then it may not, Their women may have been able to get more opportunities, Um, and so... I guess what I would say is let's make sure we understand what also has to change in society um, and not blame everything on the labor force.
3: Great, thank you. Well,
2: oh, thank you. I take on to, uh, to what uh, just had been mentioned. We cannot blame only on labor. I think we all also have a collective responsibility. Just take, for example, one sector in Mauritius. Let's take, for example, the textile sector. The textile sector employs many women at all levels. And, uh, you know, there is also the the regulatory... uh, Direct features which come in from the market as well. Because if we, for example, want to target, let's say, the American market, there are many, many, uh, many uh, issues that we have to grapple with. For example, we have to ensure that there is no child labor. There is no human trafficking. So all these are built into the system as well so to regulate this sector. So it is not just, as you say, government. It is not just to labor, but there is also, and there's also a social conscience. If you feel, for example, that so-and-so countries uh, so-and-so people are being exploited through this, I think there is this social conscience and this is also being, is coming up quite in, you know, increasingly. People have this conscience. They have, they are developing a consumer conscience around products, around brands, so they have to wake up to that as well so as to ensure that the practices and of course the, 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 the ethical practices are being adhered to in in this, in this market in these sectors. So this is also very important. Yes, not
3: a race to the bottom as, 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 the, as, the, as, bottom. as the concern yes. was, was, was made. Uh, we're quite tight on time. i'm I'm, I'm going to perhaps uh, just offer a few quick points on uh, of, of, uh, of uh, you know, sort of what I'm taking away from this, and then I'm going to ask each of the panelists to, to to quite briefly, perhaps just give a give a concluding thought and perhaps take in any uh, of, of, of the outstanding issues that that weren't raised, uh, and perhaps keep in mind the questions around technology as a force for good or good or bad. But um, I mean, I suppose the first the first key point that I'm taking away is that this is something that we as the economists need to be writing a lot more about. That I actually think we uh, haven't been grappling enough with us. So, so thank you all for, 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 for exciting me about the subject. I think the statistics that uh, that uh, that were offered about the vast numbers of people, uh, you know, sort of 10 times more than perhaps we normally think about, uh, is is, is, is you know, incredibly worrying. Um, uh, I, I think this sort of notion of, of being pragmatic, trying to get the policies right but without being dogmatic, uh, is, is key. Um, and I suppose... And, I, and I'm going to leave this with all of you as well uh, in, in your concluding remarks. The thing that I'm still not satisfied about uh, uh, is that the, you know as all of the economists in this room will tell us there is no such thing as a free lunch and yet some of these policies are being presented as if they are free lunch policies and you know I'd really just like to to, to understand more and perhaps that's for the conversation over the free lunch that we're about to go and have, um, over, over sort of really just kind of what are, what are the, the more difficult trade-offs that one has to make. But uh, th- that, that's more than enough uh, incoherence from me. So I'm, I'm going to ask Louise, and if I could ask you to just uh, g- give a, a quick concluding thought in a minute or so, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll come back here again.
7: Well, I agree that there's no free lunch, but I think there is space for more benefits for all um uh, by the way i agree that technology can help a lot and you know maybe people think that um things like um in the u.s task rabbit and the mechanical turk etc are terrible because they um drive down incomes of home-based workers let me just say that i think if we had more task rabbits and more uh mechanical turk in um, low income countries that would provide a platform for people to um, sell their labor and then they rate employers as well. Um, And so they say this person didn't pay me and this person um, is this and this person is that. Um, So uh, it it has actually, could actually benefit a lot of people. There's a social entrepreneur doing it right now in Nairobi and I think it's uh, for plumbers and and uh contract workers and i think it's a uh, fantastic and it actually the sharing of information about uh who you should work for and who you shouldn't is very helpful to people who are independent workers um now is there no free lunch um yeah there okay i think part of the trade off has sometimes if we make the excellent the enemy of the good, we really face trade-offs. And I think that has been the Latin American's experience, uh, rolling out too much social protection too fast, um, which basically uh, raised uh, labor costs. Um, so that that certainly is a problem that can be um, avoided. But there's some increasing study, that I just read a new study last night, Um, about in Colombia where they where the cash transfer the condition cash transfer system actually allowed the households that got it um, to both members of the household to work more um, and to get more formal jobs now how did that happen it didn't specify I really want to understand that because if they got more formal jobs then they're paying more taxes so sometimes these social protection systems can actually increase um, uh, economics, the the whole economy. So yes, there are yes there are trade offs. Um, we have to, but we need to not assume that if we give people social protection, they won't work, their incomes won't grow, uh, their children won't go to school. Um, so there are sometimes there. Are, these social protection policies are actually the most efficient thing to do.
3: Thank you very much. Excellency.
7: Um, thank you. I think uh,
2: we recognize that uh, the, inform- the informal economy needs to be structured, but I think the informal economy is already contributing quite a bit to the economies of the countries and the region, and I think that we have to bring uh, awareness around this that uh, it is all it's, it's already happening but how do we now empower precisely these women because we are here talking about more women how for them to recognize uh, the rights and also the responsibilities as well because these these two go side by side and at the end of the day, uh, bring to bear that it is not a zero-sum game, you know, that we have to, to see to it that uh, it, it works for everyone. And there is, of course, uh, gains to be made on, on all on all sides. But uh, I agree with what Lisa said, you know, we need to keep on working. All this think is work in progress. So.
4: So I, I, I share Louise's techno-optimism with, with obvious all the cautions and caveats about the digital divide and it needs to be managed properly because it won't by itself, the digital economy won't by itself deliver um, equity gains in the places that it needs to deliver them. But I think that there is uh, uh, nascent research that we're doing here at ODI, colleagues here carrying out, showing there, is, there are some promising examples of um, actually power relations being flipped by the use of technology. And as you said, women being able to rate their employers, not just the employers being able to rate you, for instance. Um, I also agree with the Caroline, your comment that we it's great that we're all in the room. We're not necessarily the right people who need to be in the room to have this conversation. And so we're planning, we're right at the beginning of um, planning for next year. Uh, uh, gig economy summit where we're hoping to bring together kind of tech entrepreneurs, platform owners, workers, c- you know, collectives, academics, policymakers, because we believe there is a win-win version of this. There is a model of the gig economy that benefits everyone, users, um, the you know, platform owners and workers and we want to we want to thrash out what that is and what that looks like. So we do want to be expand- expanding this conversation. Um, on the paying for lunch point, I mean, we, we look at this point exactly in the paper, how are you going to afford this? Are, are, you, are you basically encouraging people to free ride, to be working outside the informal economy so they're not paying taxes? Well, a few, a few responses to that. One of the responses we've already touched on in depth, which is, actually, these are productive investments. We all benefit from having, you know, an educated workforce, from having people who aren't living in poverty I mean, secondly, it's also not the case that informal workers don't pay taxes. They pay indirect taxes. And in low-income countries, indirect taxes make up a higher proportion of revenue intake than than in in middle and and high-income countries. So actually, that is a significant point. Um, I think it's quite interesting, actually, that the IMF... I've scribbled all over it now, but here's here's a report. I hope you'll all read it. The IMF um, commissioned us to write this report which I think is hugely interesting. Now, this isn't, the, this isn't saying that the IMF is coming out en masse, you know, all the executive directors signing up to, to you know, this is some kind of uh, manifesto statement that they're signing up to, but the fact that they're investigating this issue and they're investing in this issue, I think is really interesting. And they are messaging in their regional economic outlook to sub-Saharan Africa this year. They have said to governments in the region don't only focus on trying to extract um, maximising tax revenue from informal workers. Why don't you instead look at how you can increase productivity amongst household enterprises, for instance? Mm. So there actually, you know, you can argue about, we can have arguments about structural adjustment and neoliberalism, but if we're being pragmatic, forward-looking, there are, there are, there are reasons for optimism here. And finally, actually, there are, and we, again, we look at this, and we touch on this in the paper, there are some examples of um, taxing informal workers, micro-entrepreneurs. There's a scheme in Uruguay that does this. It's being expanded to other Latin American countries. But I don't think that actually it is necessarily a good thing to think about this sector, this whole, this vast group of people being excluded from paying taxes because there are benefits in paying taxes, not least the
6: social contract is strengthened and you expect more from your government. Myrtle? I think before I give my final few words, I just want to say something you might not all like. But so many research has been done on domestic workers. Millions of millions of rents have been spent on domestic workers. What is domestic work? Is it decent work? Is it inform- Is informal? If only those people can make that paper a reality for domestic workers, I think we would have been far in this world today. So my message is clear. Let domestic workers speak up. Let domestic tell you that we are formal workers. And let those researchers come to us and ask us, what is it that you want? How do you see yourself? How do you see building the economy? If only we can have that open space for domestic workers. And if that millions, last year, 2.5 million was given to Italy for to research. My question to them was, what do you want me to say to you here today? You have done it or Could that, that money not be used? to educate domestic workers, to help us to build the federation. If only we can have that. If only we can work together to uplift the domestic workers because education is our freedom and education will make us free to speak to our employers. So that is my message. Help us to free ourselves and speak up for ourselves. Thank you.
3: Thank you. I've got a few thanks that I uh, that I'm sure you will all uh, share with me. For, you know, thank you to the ODI and their staff for organising this, Your Excellency. Thank you for uh, for, for taking the time to uh, to join us as well as all of the other panelists. Um, uh, there is going to be this networking lunch, so please, please uh, do come along to that. Um, uh, and we've all we've all been to sort of horribly boring panels where where you know the free lunch afterwards has really been paid for in in, in boredom and and, and toil. Um, I would like to ask you to uh, to join me in thanking our panelists, because I I certainly don't think we've paid for this uh, with any any boredom uh, at all. So thank you. Thank you to the, the panel.
0: You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org.